0: If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Genesis 27. We'll actually reach back to two verses at the end of chapter 26 and reach forward to nine verses into chapter 28. But really, uh, this morning we're looking at chapter 27. This is a long section uh, in Genesis, but Moses, who is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a a consummate literary artist, gives you a clue in the way this text is framed that this is really all one scene. And the way he does it is at the end of chapter 26, he tells you that Esau gets married. Uh, He has two Hittite women as his wives. And then at the end of the section, in chapter 28, verses 6 and 9, Esau gets married again uh, and in doing that and framing what it comes in between between those two bookends Moses is telling you that everything in between is a single section a, a single set of scenes if you will and that's why we're taking it all together this morning above all what you're going to see as we work our way through this passage is that it's a mess and all these people are a mess There's not a single person in this passage that you and I would want to hang out with. We would be convinced they would do us wrong, and we wouldn't be far off. And yet, even in the midst of the mess, God's at work. God's moving in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And ultimately, as we see this, even uh, a betrayal that's far greater than we could possibly ever imagine we see that what we heard in the assurance of pardon is true, that our God is able to work together all things for good, for salvation, for those whom he's called. But in order to hear the gospel of this morning, we need ears that are opened by the Holy Spirit. So let's ask him to do that. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come as your people this day, and we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask, open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, out of this text, we're going to actually read a portion of the main scene. So we're going to actually begin our reading this morning, chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke this to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, "'I have heard your father speak to your brother Esau. "'Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food "'that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. "'Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. "'Go to the flock and bring me two young, good young goats "'so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, "'such as he loves.'" And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to his, Rebecca, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son, and the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father, And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father who felt him and said the voice is Jacob's voice but the hands are the hands of Esau and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands so he blessed him he said are you really my son Esau he answered I am then he said bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you so he brought it near to him and he ate And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Thus far, God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, when our oldest son was six or seven, we began to play chess. We we enjoyed the strategy of it, and honestly playing against a six-year-old. He was someone I could actually beat, uh, and, and it was a good way of spending time together playing. In fact, uh, Sam got into chess so much, I ended up buying a really nice chessboard board uh, and had these really awesome Civil War figurines, and we would play chess, but as Sam got older, uh, as in like eight or nine, he became way better than me. He seemed to have this ability to figure out what I was going to do and he started making moves several steps ahead in order to thwart my purposes and plans. Uh, Conversely, when he was on the move, what he was doing was often a mystery to me, at least until he trapped me uh, and he would say in that sweet eight-year-old voice, checkmate. And then it was obvious what he was trying to do all along. And it was obvious that by the time he was 12, we stopped playing because I got tired of being beat. You know, I, we often wonder if life functions just this way. I, whether we can somehow do something to derail God's plans for us. Whether, whether in fact God's reacting to us constantly like some kind of grand chess master where we're making our moves and God's having to react to make sure that his plan stays in place, as though God's somehow always one step ahead. We may think in those terms, but the Bible's picture is actually quite different. The Bible doesn't present God as some kind of grand chess master trying to counter our moves. Rather, the Bible pictures God from Genesis to Revelation, if you will, as a kind of weaver uh, to use Edith Schaeffer's uh, imagery from her book, The Tapestry. God's this grand weaver taking the various threads of our lives and so many other people's lives and weaving them together in this beautiful tapestry that shows forth his glory. Of course, the problem is, is we, don't, we don't see how we're being woven in. Sometimes what God is up to is a complete mystery to us. We might trust that there's a pattern, but it doesn't seem to relieve the pain that we feel. And sometimes, honestly, we fear that if we've made the wrong choice or we've made the wrong decision or, or we've sinned in some way that really could, could disrupt and di- derail God's purpose and plan for us. And somehow we could step way outside of God's will and mess the whole thing up. Uh, if you think that way, I've got good news for you this morning from this place in the Bible. Because what we have here in Genesis 27 is is each of these actors acting for themselves and quite honestly acting quite poorly. Uh, Neither Isaac nor Rebecca, Jacob nor Esau, none of them come off looking really good here. And in fact, they're sinning and, and sinning against one another in all sorts of ways. And yet... God is able to weave all of this together for his own purpose. To continue to advance his his salvation story. A salvation story that will ultimately impact you and me. It was for us in our salvation that all of these things are happening. Now, does that excuse sin? I mean, should we sin more, act foolishly or poorly, knowing that in the end God will straighten it all out? Well, no. Now, we will see the negative consequences that will plague all of these players in the chapters to come. But, but this chapter does give us hope. Because what happens in our lives isn't an accident. It's, it's not the result of chance or luck. It's, it's not because God somehow fell asleep on the, jo- uh, on the job and took his hands off the wheel. no. God is able to take the evil in our lives, the the evil in our world, the evil that happens to us, even the evil of ultimate betrayal, and he's able to use it for his own purpose of salvation and hope, not just in a macro way, but for your life. How do I know that? Well, I know that because of what's happening here in this chapter. God is moving in a mysterious way, even in the midst of failures. Now, there's a lot of failures in chapter 27. But but this passage opens by describing two particular failures right at the outset. And the first failure is Esau's failure. We didn't read it, but it's the last two verses at the end of chapter 26. Look at it there. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Bere the Hittite, to be his wife. And Basmath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life better bitter for Isaac and Rebecca. Now you know we're, we're two chapters removed. Back in chapter 24 we saw the links to which Abraham went in order to secure a bride for Isaac and he told his trusted servant now don't pick a woman from around here one of these Canaanite women and don't take Isaac back to Haran where I'm from. Instead you need to you need to search out a bride for Isaac. Now Remember, what was Abraham's concern? Well, Abraham's concern was that if the servant picked out a woman from these Canaanites surrounding Abraham, that, that his family would actually be assimilated, would be absorbed in among these Canaanites, these, these pagan worshipers of different gods. And the promise that God had made to Abraham that he would be a distinct nation would actually be lost. Now, that... That story had to have been known, had to have been known as, as Abraham and Isaac knew the story and as Isaac and Rebekah repeatedly told the story to their children around campfires for, for years and years and years and years. So when Esau goes and chooses two Hittite women, two women from the, from the tribes around them, what is he doing? Well, he's demonstrating profound disregard for his parents. Profound disregard for his upbringing within the covenant people of God. But, of, but above all, he's showing his, his great disregard for God. And here again, too, you see that through this failure, uh, even though the, the prophecy of chapter 25 is what's driving this story forward, that the older shall serve the younger, you also see the fact that, that Esau was, in fact, unworthy to be the firstborn. This is another sign that that God's determination to have Jacob be the covenant keeper, the one who holds the covenant promises, actually wasn't far off. Esau demonstrates that he could care less about God. But there's not just Esau's failure. Actually chapter 27, which we did read together, at least the first part, shows another failure and it's It's Isaac's failure. Uh, Already we had heard back in chapter 25 the developing favoritism in Isaac and Rebekah's family. That that Isaac preferred Esau and that Rebekah preferred Jacob. Well here in the first four verses of chapter 27 you see the consequences of that favoritism. So verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son and he answered here I am Isaac said behold I am old I do not know the day of my death now then take your weapons your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die now we may not see the problem at first glance in those verses but here it is Isaac thinks he's dying that's what he tells you. And, and he's going to extend, because he thinks he's dying, he's going to extend the, the generational blessing to the next generation. Now, what was most common in the ancient Near Eastern world when that happened is you call all the children, at least all the sons. And you're going to get a picture of that at the end of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is about ready to die, what does he do? He calls all of his children, and in fact, he includes Joseph's two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, is part of the blessing that he is going to give to the next generation. That was what was most common, but, but what happens here? Well, Isaac just calls Esau. He doesn't call Jacob at all. Which then should lead you to ask the question, why does he do that? Why does it appear that Isaac is excluding Jacob here? I don't think it's clear beyond a little clue in verse 4. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love. And bring it to me that my soul may bless you before I die. You see, once again, Isaac is overlooking Esau's character. He, he knows that step by step, Esau has betrayed his position as the firstborn. He's shown disregard to God in the marriages he's contracted. But... But Isaac doesn't seem to care about that not only is he overlooking Esau's character he also appears to be going directly contrary to the word of God because God had told Rebecca and surely Isaac knew that the older would serve the younger that the promises would go through that younger son Isaac knew but he loved his son's food what's going on his his sensuality it's overriding his theology. His his desires were, were overriding what he knows the Bible says is true. He doesn't care what God says. He wants what he wants. His sensuality is trumping his theology. And in that regard, then, Esau's failure and Isaac's failure are really the same failure. Esau wanted the women around him. Didn't really care what the example of his parents and grandparents was. And he took what he wanted. Isaac wanted the food that his son could prepare for him. He wanted the tasty game. Didn't really care what God had said about the younger serving the older. He went ahead anyway. Do you see the failures? And yet, not only do you have failure here, not only do you have this sin and dysfunction you have the reactions of Rebekah and Jacob, and you, you have this grand deception that they cook up. I mean, what happens in verse 5 is probably one of the more familiar parts of the entire story of Jacob. Rebekah discovers what's happening. She's actually listening at the door of Isaac's tent. She knows that Isaac is determined to give away the blessing to the, of the firstborn to Esau, and so she gets Jacob and she says, look, you go get me the goats. I'll cook the food. I'll clothe you with Esau's clothes. I'll even take some goat skin and apply it to the proper spots so that, so that your father won't know it's you. And he'll give you the blessing. Y'all, that's a crazy plot. It, it shouldn't work. Even Jacob is questioning it. In verse 12, he says, what if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. But has considered all this. She says, let the curse fall on me, my son. You go do what I tell you to do. Well, we know that Isaac is blind. We know that he's weak, but he, his other senses work. He can hear and he can smell and he can touch. And so when when Jacob goes in carrying the tasty food, almost immediately what Isaac hears confuses him. You see it in verse 18. Jacob went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Verse 20. Isaac says to his son, How is it that you found the game so quickly, my son? Jacob responds because The Lord your God has granted me success. Already Isaac's questioning this. Please come near me that I may feel you my son to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob goes near and Isaac ends up saying the voice is Jacob's voice but the hands are the hands of Esau. You see it? His hearing and his touching are warring against each other. He knew the voice was Jacob's voice. But he felt the hairy arms and perhaps grabbed the hairy back of his neck and began to question what he thought he knew. Maybe it is he saw. One last time he tries to sort it out right before he gives the blessing. Come near me. Kiss me, my son. And when he smells the clothes, it's the touching and the smelling that end up persuading him that his ears are mistaken. And he blesses Jacob, thinking it's Esau. And he gives to Jacob the words that God had already given him before he was born. Verse 29, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Curse be everyone who curses you and bless be everyone who blesses you. And so it appears that Rebecca and Jacob get their way but y'all nobody looks good in this nobody comes out good in this deception rebecca certainly doesn't look good plotting against her husband jacob doesn't look good plotting again lying to his father sure dad i'm esau yeah right he doesn't look good and isaac doesn't look good either well wait a second what did isaac do why does he not look good well, I think because of what happens next, you, you, you come to see why. Because Esau arrives. He arrives with the tasty game. He he's realized, begins to realize what's happening. Verse 31, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Why did Isaac tremble? Right? That's what it says. Isaac trembled very violently. Why? Because I think he knew. He, he knew that he was trying to act contrary to God's word. He knew that he was allowing his sensuality to override his theology, that he was allowing his desires to take him in a direction directly contrary to God's word, and God wouldn't let him do it. God intervened. I mean, far, far from being a helpless, weak, and blind old man, Isaac shows that he knew what he was doing and trembling violently. And even in the midst of this deception that had been worked out by his wife and his younger son, still God's purposes held fast. The younger son was the chosen one. The older would serve the younger. God's purpose promised to Abraham extended through Isaac would in fact go through Jacob no matter what Isaac did. How that happened surely had to have been mysterious. To all the players involved, and yet it was surely the case, despite failure, despite deception, God's aco- will was being accomplished here. And but there's one more part to this, another painful piece. This departure, Esau, as you might expect, is furious with Jacob you see it in verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. So Esau said to himself the days of mourning for my father are approaching then I will kill my brother Jacob. Now whether he was muttering that to himself or muttering it to anyone who could hear or muttering it down at the local bar, Rebecca found out and she knew there was enough truth in it. She was fearful that Cain would slaughter Abel once again and so she says to To Isaac, these Canaanite women, they're driving me crazy, right? That's what she says at the end of the chapter in verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my wife because of the Hittite women, i.e. the Hittite women that Esau married. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? And so she sends him away. It's notable that when Isaac relays this information he actually signals that he knew what happened and he knew not just Jacob's role in it but his own failure as well in chapter 28 verse 1 then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women arise go to Padanaram, Aram to the house of Bethuel your mother's father and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban your mother's brother, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take the possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. That's everything God had said back in chapter 12. Great nation, great name through you, all the blessings of the, uh, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Isaac named that for Jacob. I know what happened. Rebecca thinks she's just sending her son away for just a little while till things calm down. She'll be able to call her son back soon. And yet in God's mysterious way, she will never see Jacob again. He'll stay in Padanaram for 20 years. And yet even this departure even the departure served God's purpose. I mean, not only did it remove Jacob from a volatile situation, it also led him to the place where he would gain two wives and 12 sons. And these 12 sons would be the very basis of this nation that God was going to raise up in, in fulfillment of the promises he made to Abraham. Jacob goes to Badan Aram as one man. He comes back as 70. Now, as you, as you think about all this about how God is weaving these failures and deceptions and departures together in order to accomplish his salvation purpose, I wonder. I wonder if you feel any reverberations. I wonder if you hear any echoes in your own heart, because after all, some of you, let's just be honest this morning, some of you have experienced failure and you've experienced in massive ways. You have allowed your sensuality to trump your theology. You allowed your desires to overrun what you knew God's word said was true. The confession of sin this morning that we prayed together. Those were words for you this morning. About things that your lips trembled to name. About a past that you want to be really past. And you wonder what was that all about? Why did I fail in such a way? And you you wear this guilt and shame. That even though you've shoved it in a closet and tried to lock the door, you know what's still there. Others of you, you've engaged in deception, whether it's relational deception or financial deception or some kind of manipulation. You've taken that which doesn't belong to you, whether it's someone else's reputation through gossip and slander, whether it's somebody's finances, and you've taken it out of some kind of grand deception, out of some kind of grand conspiracy. In ways that you know are contrary to God's word. And still others of you. You've known departures that were not just painful but devastating. A parent. A spouse. A child. A colleague. A co-worker. A fellow church member. Someone who used to be right in your life. Kind of like warp and woof with you. And then they've been ripped away. And as you look at all of this all of this pain and brokenness and difficulty you've wondered where is God in any of this I mean can my sin and can this evil really actually derail God's purpose in my life can God work even in the midst of my sin and sinning how in the world can this be woven together as a tapestry for God's glory how can this work together as a synergy for my salvation this text, I think, points us in the direction. Because this entire scene shows us that God is at work. He's moving in mysterious ways. He's able to use even this kind of dysfunction to accomplish his purpose. But friend, if you doubt that this morning, there's one more proof I'd like to offer to you. One more proof that God is able to take evil and sin and dysfunction and failure and and departure and betrayal in order to to work his salvation story out in your life and in mine because the fact of the matter is that at, right at the heart of Christianity is the, is the most massive betrayal in the history of the world I mean think about it I mean central to Christianity is the fact that God takes human evil and uses it for his good purposes uh, in the story of Jesus Uh, You have James and John. Right after Jesus tells them for the third time that he is going to be crucified at the hands of evil men, they argue between themselves who's going to be first in the kingdom. Right after that, Jesus is arrested. Arrested because Judas, who is the treasurer, he decides that 30 coins is worth it to stop this madman and so the Pharisees and, and their henchmen come and they arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They drag him off to the Sanhedrin. And there at the Sanhedrin you have this, this, this kangaroo court, this, this fake trial where, where the witnesses couldn't even get their story straight. They couldn't even agree until, until the high priest charges the son of the living God with blasphemy. And right after that, that sentence is cast down, you have Jesus' best friend sitting outside by the fire, denying he even knows him and calling down a death curse upon himself and upon Jesus too. They drag him off to Golgotha's hill and they crucify him. And as they do, you have the crowd standing there mocking him, mocking what was really a miscarriage of justice the mocking sign that Pilate requires to be over his head the king of the Jews, a signal to what was wrong and what was done wrong in all of this. Even the thieves standing or uh, crucified on either side of Jesus turn on him and mock him. Friends, it was it was a day of massive injustice. It was the greatest crime and the most horrid betrayal. And it happened on the day we call Good Friday. not evil Friday but Good Friday because our God is able to take the evil that you and I freely choose and the evil that's actually happened to us and he's able to weave it together in a tapestry that shows his glory as he has come for us in our salvation. Which means then when you begin to wonder about the evil in you or the evil that's happened to you. As you begin to wonder about your failure and your deception and your departures and your betrayal. As you begin to wonder about all that is broken and wrong. And you wonder whether it's somehow too much for God to forgive or too much for God to deal with. My friend, look at the cross. Look at the cross and survey it. Wonder at it. Observe it and meditate upon it. And what will you find? There at the cross you will find our God moving in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. You'll see there our God placing his footsteps on the sea and riding upon the storm. You'll see there that God is at work on Golgotha's hill saving sinners like you and me through the death of his only son. Who would have thought that? Utterly mysterious, and yet utterly glorious. But there's something else to see as you survey that cross. See there in the cross God's invitation to you to to turn from your sin, and to turn from your failure, and to turn from your deception, and to turn from all of your departures, and your betrayal, and your gossip, and your slander, and your lies, and it all, and to turn from your bitterness and rage, and to turn to Jesus Christ they're hanging on the cross for you for all of your sin and sinning so that you might be set free run to him to this one who's triumphed over it all and you know what you'll find you know what you find when you look at the cross when you run to Jesus Christ crucified you'll find a love so amazing so divine so gracious so real so for you, is for you. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do come this morning to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. O Lord, we do pray that you would grant us grace this morning to count but loss our richest gains and to pour contempt on all our pride as we survey your cross. But above all, Lord, let us look at this cross of Jesus Christ, this cross endured for us. And may we see here yet another sign that you are at work for us, for us in our salvation. And you won't let us go. You won't let us go. You will bring us safely home. You love us that much. Lord, please grant us such grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.